tomorrow the flood from there is nothing to fear by santissime read by sam gabriel based on the works of jk rowling chapter 4 jinny weasley fun for the whole family wednesday 16th August, 1995. At home, Ginny woke earlier than she ever did at Hogwarts. There were chicken eggs to pull every morning, and pigs to slop and milk, and more work besides. The garden was colorful and bright, full of fruiting tomatoes and raspberries and sappy stickaback to pluck and slippery roots to pull and further on was the field of turkey wheat, where Fred and George followed the husking knife and levitated ears of wheat against the bang board. Plows plowed and scythes scythed beneath animation charms, but a degree of human supervision was still required. Every witch and wizard grew up knowing the legend of Eucrates and Pancrates, and the animated pestle that drew water till the whole house was flooded. Ginny looked at them with a light flitter of envy. However unengaging the work might be, Fred and George had each other to talk to, and it was less tiresome than dealing with the old sow. But on the rare occasion that some animated tool went awry, magic was often needed in response, and the Weasleys were not a family to flout the reasonable restriction of underage sorcery, no matter how unlikely it was that they would be found out. Ever since they turned seventeen this year, the twins had been teasing Ron about it, apparating up and down the house and levitating objects that could be picked up just as easily. It was a lot of fun to watch most of the time, but seeing them at work now brought to mind the fact that she was the youngest of her siblings. Percy still lived at the borough. Never mind that he was turning nineteen next week, but he would surely settle down somewhere once Mom realized he was just looking for an excuse to help with the chores, and her other brothers had shown no such inclination to stay behind. By the time that she would be permitted to use magic at home, Ginny would probably be the only one of them left. Thursday, 17th August, 1995 Breakfast that day was a Devonshire fry-up, mushrooms, tomatoes, fried bread on toast, and eggs from the hen-coop, plus bubble and squeak that Mum had filled out with hog's pudding. It used all the meat that was left from last autumn. Ginny would miss the meat. It wasn't legal to trap much more than hares and pigeons around here, close as they were to a muckle settlement, but that was like eating gnomes. It wasn't fit for people. She ate slowly, wishing that the sausage could be hot enough to sear the flavor into her tongue, and wishing she felt more gratitude for what was there than resentment for what would soon be gone. And there would be more to eat than she could stomach at Hogwarts, but there'd be little to none at the burrow until her family butchered this year's porkers after Halloween— it isn't as if her parents would use their limited galleons to buy a butcher's steak in one of the magical settlements. I think that I'm just about finished with Verity Templeton's carpet bag. It only bites now and it smells blood, Dad says, soaking the tomato juice on his plate into his last scrap of bread. I was thinking of going down to Ottery later today to see if Beck Greybroom has any pieces worth looking at. Are you going to pass something for the muggles again? Ginny asked, and Percy frowned from across the table. "'For Mr. Greybroom, yes, it's honest work.' Dad aimed that remark at Percy. "'Not just anyone can put together a snapped antique chair leg, even with magic. And if I leave a few floors, then the repair will look just like muggle work.' 
It isn't as if there's a legal exchange for shillings these days, and the muggle cupboard looks as nice as any wizarding one, and I can do the enchantments myself. I don't think you should, Percy said. It isn't my department, but I've heard that the ministry is going to take a harder look at muggle imports at the end of this year. If they audit you, and they surely will since it's you, then they'll review everything until they find a mistake. It wouldn't have to be anything significant, just a repair that's a little too good. Dad frowned till his face scrunched. What belong to it's illegal to say how do you do on the street without a license, he said, feigning lightness in his tone. Not to a muggle, anyway, but the Ministry has reduced muggle-baiting almost to nothing, said Percy. Those laws are to prevent people from taking advantage of the muggles, and if it weren't for the man who suggested them, I would expect you to support them. They don't need protection from me, Dad insisted. It isn't as if I'm trying to pay the grocer with a handful of transfigured leaves. But the muggles can't get on as well as us, Father. A muggle carpenter can't possibly compete with you. And if a fix-up at the furniture store means minced beef on our plate, then to a muggle it means bread on his. Minced beef sounded pretty good to Jenny, and she had half a mind to say so, but— No politics at the table, Mum reminded them. I'm just saying that you should be careful, Percy said. And his tone had nothing but care in it now. I know, Dad said. The statement was almost a sigh, as if he were letting out a ghost— Friday, 18th August. Luna's mud and thunder ice cream roiled in its magical suspension, while strawberry rain and bits of cinder toffee hail fell into the ceramic bowl beneath it. A few stray drops of strawberry puree fell onto the floor, ruining its pristine, blank whiteness before it appeared to fade out of the world. "'Father says that I wouldn't believe how many bodies he's disposed of in this room,' Luna once said. But she was probably joking, or he was. Stains and liquids were gotten rid of in the featureless white room, and crumbs and flecks of things, but not whole people, or else Luna and Jenny wouldn't be eating ice cream here. "'It's just Father and I right now,' Luna said. She tapped the ice cream cloud with her spoon to make it stop raining, and mixed strawberry and toffee with the chocolate ice cream mud in her bowl. "'Mother likes to keep the summer workload light.' But the ministry picks her up to work on the National Stopper, so she hardly has time to eat and wash up, and some night she doesn't come back at all. This was hardly the first summer break that Luna had lost her mum to work, but Ginny didn't say that. Pandora had always prioritized an interesting problem over everything else, and Luna didn't need that reminder. Because of the war. It was funny, that phrasing. The war... Six months ago, that would have referred to something that was supposed to have been laid to rest long ago. Now it pointed to the future. Lifting the interdict was supposed to have been a good thing, but now there have been deaths at Hogwarts, and the wireless was abuzz with anxious speculation. It all felt so terribly similar to the stories Ginny had been told of the last war. Mother hasn't given us any particulars. Only what she says when she thinks aloud, and you know how that can be. Luna picked over her ice cream. Someone tried to light a flu connection to the continent last week, but that could have just been a Tebow team testing the department's vigilance. What's a Tebow team? Luna could say the oddest things sometimes, but at least they usually made sense after she explained them. Do you know what a Tebow is? asked Luna, and Ginny nodded. They were a sort of magical bore, except they could turn invisible. A Tebow team is a group that tries to break what you're working on. 
like criminals, except that someone in charge asked them to do it. If Mr. Rookwood secretly asked the DMLE to try to sneak into the Department of Mysteries, or DMAC asked somebody to try to insert the wrong kind of story into muggle newspapers and see if Detect would catch them, they'd be making Tebow teams. Ginny thought about that for a moment, a spoon lingering in her mouth. She wasn't much for mud and thunder, but the Lovegoods still had plenty of normal flavors in their icebox, like buttered toast or the bowl of black licorice that she was eating now. I'm sure that everything will be fine, she finally told Luna. That's what Charlie said anyway, and even Ron didn't want to disagree. Riddle had spent the whole summer beating the drums of peace, meeting with ambassadors and even heads of state, and giving so many speeches on the wireless that one would wonder where he found the time for it all, if it weren't obvious that some of the time it had to be a substitute speaking in his place. The Department of International Magical Cooperation had nearly doubled in size since the start of the year, too, and Percy himself had been saddled with the duties of at least three wizards simultaneously getting a team of new hires up to speed while writing a proposal to improve department efficiency and completing his original workload to boot. I hope so. It's all that Father talks about sometimes, Luna smiled thinly. That and moving to London. I don't know why that makes sense to him. Mother often works for the Ministry, but they have her going about to all kinds of places. I think that he has some idea that she takes lunch at Dagon, but, Ginny, you've met her. "'Tell me you don't think she eats lunch over a trough compass.' "'Nah, it's your mum, all right,' Ginny agreed. "'I hope you don't move, though. "'I've got nobody else but you and my brothers, "'and I know that there are other ways to see them, "'but, you know, it's not been the same since Sadie's family moved away.' "'For a while, Ginny was sure the Fawcett's would never leave, "'at least not until Sadie had graduated from Hogwarts, "'but the wizarding quarter of Godric's Hollow had gotten so big and, well— Dad wasn't half wrong about the Ministry's policy on muggles. There wasn't as much of a point to living near a muggle settlement when purchasing a ham sandwich required a customs permit. Much easier to live in one of the designated magical districts, where there wasn't any extra parchment work to vote, and there were few enough muggles to almost make it a second hogsmeade. There's being friends and there's being neighbors, and I'm glad that we're both. Saturday, 19th August, 1995 Mum set Jenny and Fred to work in the garden together that weekend while Ron and George brewed snail aside and wove copper wool to keep away the streelers that would unseal their shells when the rain picked up in October. Streelers didn't eat most of the crops that her family cared about, but their slime killed vegetation indiscriminately, and the chickens and pigs might prick themselves on the poisonous spines. It was not a chore that Jenny was sorry to see go to someone else. Snailicide burned her nose, and weaving copper had a way of cutting the fingers, no matter how careful they were, so she was pleased to be outside, even if she had to wear gloves for the creeping buttercup. She and Fred worked in easy tandem, pulling tulips and maleficent rotwort and other weeds, and putting down in their place good plants like wallrocket and dandelions. The late autumn harvest was the least of the year, but no less important for the variety that it could add. Every flavor that her family grew in the garden was one less that had to be purchased, and even what didn't taste good would still nourish the body. Fred seemed uncharacteristically subdued, though, as if somebody had popped his puffskin. "'Has Mum been getting on you about your futures again?' asked Jenny. This summer she caught the edges of more than one conversation on that topic. "'She has, but I could survive without getting another lecture. That's not really what's bothered me.' 
It just got me thinking, Fred said. You wouldn't believe how long George and I have spent awake on Dumbledore's portrait. Ginny puzzled over that for a second. Do you mean how long you spent working? No, awake at night, Fred clarified. This can't just be good, Ginny. It has to be perfect. and has to leave everyone in awe. Not that we've left them in suspense for so long. The people have been waiting for us to finish this for two years. And we're not even going to be able to parlay this into something really important. Fred paused in thought, hand patting down the dirt where he'd just stowed a Swedish turnip seed. George could be a portraiter, actually, but I don't think that's the life for me. But you're good at it, aren't you? Ginny wished that she was good at something, really good, not just competent, but children's hexes and broomstick flying didn't make a career. Some people say so, he replied. I might even believe them a little, but still, when I finish this, I'll mostly just be relieved that the job is done. They worked in silence for a little after that, but it was obvious that Fred's brain was somewhere else. Government ordinance wouldn't be too bad, he said while Ginny was untangling a length of happily, busily climbing goosegrass. There'd be good money in that, and always a challenge. We'd be really valuable if we were brewing up logistical solutions, say, unconventional approaches. He grinned just for a moment. But George isn't interested in it. His hands began to pull at weeds again, and he tossed another tulip bulb in the bin. Maybe it's for the best. There might not be a war, and if there is, it won't last forever. I would still need to think about what I'd do after the war, just like I have to decide what I'll do after school. You'd need to figure out something else to tell Mum, anyway, Jenny said. I don't think she would want to hear about your plan to profit off a war, Fred snorted. Not on my life. The garden turns to silence once again. Ginny's attention returns to their work, or it tried to, but what Fred had said was tangled up in her thoughts like the goosegrass around her fingers. She wasn't sure whether she would be pleased with Fred's career plan either, but there was always a good side in any war, wasn't there? Maybe people didn't always start a war for a good reason, but that just meant that the other side, the folks who had just been trying to live in peace, were the good ones. And even the people who made really important potions for St. Mungo's had to charge somebody for those potions so they could stay alive and healthy and brew more. Ginny knew that Fred might be thinking of making a bit more than blood-replenishing potion and burn-healing paste. He was good at explosions. And if he wasn't good enough at it for a war, then Ginny was sure he could get better. But if there were good people on one side, then helping them in any way, even giving them sandwiches, would keep them going and they'd end up killing people on the other side. And if a few people on the other side were blown up, then they wouldn't be around to kill any of the good ones. That felt like the sort of thing that Bill or Percy might say. Or maybe that was all wrong somehow. Ginny didn't really know. But if there was just one thing that she knew, it was that her parents and her brothers were good people. If there were a good side and a bad side, then her family would always be on the right side. Even Fred. The twins could be a little mean to Ron and Percy sometimes, and even on very rare occasions to her, but there was meanness and there was badness, and she couldn't see how either of them could be considered bad. You know, Fred, there's always a war somewhere, isn't there? And some side worth fighting for went unsaid. Fred didn't answer immediately. There is, he finally said and a curious look fell across his face as if the sun were setting upon it. Where is it that? 
Very few things were ever completely useless, and weeds were no exception. Almost everything had a place in one potion or another. What they had plucked and rooted was then stowed in a wicker basket, which Fred levitated. If there were war in France, we'd be on the right side, wouldn't we? Ginny asked as they returned to the burrow. I think we'd be on the British side, Fred answered, and he bespelled the kitchen door to open before Ginny could twist the handle for him. You know what I mean, Ginny said. She paid more attention to Fred than where they were going, or who was around, and continued, Would Britain be right to go to war? That is— No politics at the table, Mum interrupted. But, Mother, replied Fred, we're not at the table, just near it. Unfortunately, Fred's rational analysis fell upon deaf ears. Sunday, 20th August, 1995. Dad had taken a trip to Ballycastle that weekend to help a bloke named Shane Osriens sort through an inheritance from his great-aunt, who had been a collector of dark artifacts, and Mum had gone to Godric's Hollow to make a few last-minute purchases, and the twins were probably at Grimald, and, well, point was— when Bill arrived a little before noon with souvenir storm globes for everyone, Jenny was the only one downstairs to greet him. Bill had just come back to Britain a couple of days earlier, after he'd spent most of the summer in Norway, Denmark. Gringotts' business, of course, but Jenny didn't know what they would need a curse breaker to do up there. So, storm globe in hand, she asked him. I was an escort, really, Bill began. Gringotts and a few of the other guilds thought they would run into less trouble with the Norse Danish government if there were a few humans with them. They wanted to meet with the goblins in Nyrkeslit or something like that. Anyway, they kept telling me that I was pronouncing it wrong. Ever since the incident came down, the goblins here in Britain have been reaching out to goblins abroad, and the dwergs are closest. They're pretty much cousins. The Scandies are where our goblins came from, originally. What did they leave? asked Ginny. Unspoken, why did they come here in particular? It was wrong that goblins weren't allowed to hold a wand in the old days— and wrong that they still couldn't in the rest of the world. But where the other former outcasts that she knew at Hogwarts, the hags and vampires, the werewolves and muggleborns, all seemed to mix right in with everybody else for the most part, goblins felt more standoffish than anything else. Not to mention all the rebellions. All of it was enough to make Ginny feel like it would have been better if they had gone to Tibet or somewhere like that and saved both sides a lot of trouble. The temperature would probably have been closer to what they remembered, too. But Bill wasn't a legitimans, so he only heard what she had said. That's a really interesting question, actually. Some of my co-workers, those of them that aren't goblins anyway, think about it in economic terms, but it feels to me like a kind of religious dispute, honestly. What drove our goblins out of the Scandies was an argument about property. Like the noble estates? She could understand that. Her own family had arguably gotten caught up in the suppression of the estates if the loss of the apple orchard and some of their pasture counted, but by and large it was supposed to have been a good thing. Ginny was awfully fond of Draco, but even he had to admit that it just hadn't been right when such a small number of people had such a large proportion of the Wizengamot seats, and the same thing had to be true about businesses and galleons and other things. Not exactly. Basically— Goblins in Britain believe you can only own something that you've made. Okay, not really. There are some exceptions. Like if you inherited something. And if you carved a passage through rock, then that's sort of a thing that you made. But British goblins treat it like we treat common pasture, for example. Some of the rest, I don't really understand. Like how there are times when a possession can't be inherited. 
and you have to throw it away when the crafter dies, but I don't think they expect us to be able to understand all the intricacies of Goldwyn property laws, or property doctrines, maybe. Drumflux gets exasperated when he tries to explain it to me, but I think it's more about how I keep asking. Ginny can understand that perfectly well. She was starting to hang on her wit's ends, just listening to Bill lay it out, dangling on a rope named Confused Annoyance. I think it's got something to do with goblin magic, but anyway, the dwergs have a totally different view, Bill continued. But Ginny stopped paying much attention at that point. Her eyes were drawn more to the storm globe sitting in her lap, smooth and warm beneath her fingers, full of crackling fog and rumbling clouds, and dotted with transient lightning bolts that twinkled like distant stars. Let's say that Mum had invented the word for apple, and then we inherited ownership when she passed on, so each of us had a share. If someone else wanted to say apple, then they'd have to negotiate with each of us. That would take time, and worse, what if one of us was mad at one of the others? If I wanted, I would say, Percy not to get paid, more than I wanted to get paid, then I might refuse out of pure mulishness. So what the dwags did was they... She couldn't see Bill having such a big problem with anybody, let alone someone as inoffensive as Percy, but maybe that was the reason for his choice. Even without mention of them, Ginny couldn't help but think of other fishers in her family. There were a couple of cousins who simply didn't talk with Dad anymore, and of course there was Ron... She could easily imagine Ron being that mad at Charlie. Back in a couple of months, but first the guilds needed to decide how to respond. Convincing the dwergs to drop the issue would be tantamount to bringing them around to the British way of thinking, so it would be easier to just tell the dwergs that if they want back payments for the use of patented vocabulary, they'll have to prove fact of use. But that would essentially mean conceding that the dwergs were right in the first place, so— "'Hey, Ron! It's great to see you. How have you been?' Bill said." And Jenny realized she'd been so wrapped up in her thoughts that she hadn't even noticed Ron come downstairs. It's been okay. What was this? Ron asked, and Bill explained the storm globes and handed one to Ron. Anyway, Bill said. I was just regaling Jenny with my adventures in Norway, Denmark. Right, what did they need a curse breaker up there for anyway? Ron asked. I was an escort, really, Bill began. Monday, 21st August, 1995. There were only two bedrooms with a private fireplace, and Ginny's parents had one of them. If Percy hadn't remained home, she wasn't sure who would have gotten the other one, but he had been the most responsible and least adventurous of them all, so when Bill moved out a few summers ago, there had been no question about who would get his room. Thanks to the same reliable nature that had earned Percy that bedroom in the first place, Ginny could be well assured that she wouldn't run into him on a weekday afternoon. The only trouble was that she had to guess when the twins or Ron might want to use the fireplace for their own reasons, but that was hardly ever a real issue. They didn't have as many reasons to make a surreptitious fire call. Her chat with Draco hadn't exactly been pleasant, concerned as it was with topics like Hermione and the seemingly interminable crises that his mother was fielding in the Wizengamot, but her conversation partner was enjoyable enough that she still let the time get away from her. Sticking her head in the fireplace rather obscured Ginny's view of the clocks in Percy's room, and it wasn't until Draco said that he had to check the wand grove before dinner that Ginny realized that it was past five o'clock and Percy would be getting back from work any time now. With hasty apologies, Ginny pulled away sharply enough that she banged her head against the edge of the fireplace, but that would be fine so long as she got out in time, and there was bruise removal paste in the medicine chest downstairs. The noise must have caught Ron's attention, 
because he came out of his room just as Jenny started down the stairs. "'Who are you talking to?' he asked. Before Jenny could do much more than stammer out Luna's name, Ron added, "'You're lucky that Percy decided to walk downstairs.' It was enough to reroute all of Jenny's thoughts about her headache. "'He's some already?' What do you mean he's working? He thought there wasn't enough room to expand his desk, I think, Ron said, and Jenny resumed her descent. The table was almost twice its usual size, and sheets and stacks of parchment were spread across every square inch of it, like a miniature landscape from a world of office work. Off on the table's left side was an open book of calendars, and beside it were a slide rule and a pair of knuckle bones. Percy, still dressed in his work robes, was writing neatly but furiously on gilded parchment, while his note replicated itself on three other sheets. "'What's all this?' she asked as soon as she reached the kitchen. "'I thought it was your birthday tomorrow. They won't let you take the night off.' "'They sent me home, but I can't possibly take time off. Not right now,' Percy said. Jenny groaned, but he ignored her. "'The department wants to hold a tribute for Cornelius on Thursday.' That means filling out forms, material requisitions, reserving the conference room on Neville One. Thursday's awfully quick, isn't it? Jenny cut him off before he could build up steam. Hardly anybody had known about the minister's death till it had been announced on the wireless that morning. Jenny was young enough to feel like Fudge was old, but he was—he had been hardly seventy, and objectively speaking, that wasn't too old. But his wife had gotten the black cat flu the winter before, and he'd been alone all that time and stressed to boot. Cardial cordials only helped if a person ate them. "'All of the departments want to do something, and it's true that Cornelius was everyone's minister, but we feel personally involved. Minister for Magic is never a relaxing position, but he had been working so much on behalf of international cooperation to ensure that we could keep the peace. I feel personally involved,' Percy added, and he turned back to his quill and the sheet of parchment in front of him. "'I was in his office two weeks ago.' He had almost a complete set of cardinal cordials in his cabinet when he drew some parchment. I thought that he had just recently refilled the box, but I didn't ask. Jinny shivered. The heart-thumping charm was just as essential for any responsible person to learn as the anti-choking spell, but magic like that was hard to perform on oneself. Magic had a generally vitalizing effect on the wizarding body, but all it took was a couple of minutes at the wrong time, and even a competent person could die like a muggle. Any normal person might have assumed the same thing, she tried, but Percy evidently wasn't going to have that. I'm supposed to be diligent, he protested. Look at you now, Jenny said. Isn't this diligence? This is patching a leak on a boat that's sunk. If I were actually diligent, then Cornelius would be alive. Don't be ridiculous, Percy. You are his nurse, Jenny said. Besides, if he was that bad at taking care of himself, then he probably wouldn't have listened to you. Who will listen about what? Ron asked, coming down the stairs. Percy insists on taking responsibility for the whole world. If we went to war with France tomorrow, then I'm sure you would feel guilty for that too, Jenny said. I'm senior undersecretary to the head of international cooperation, Percy retorted. Quill in hand, Percy had resumed the checking of boxes and filling of lines as if he could do it in his sleep, which he probably could, Jenny decided. You're right that it would be partly my fault if something were to happen. "'Then we should blame you for the troubles at the tournament, right?' Ginny didn't wait for Percy to respond before she turned to Ron. "'It's going to be just as mopey tomorrow, and on his own birthday.' Ron grunted noncommittally. "'Well, then I'm going to be twice as cheerful to make it for the both of you,' Ginny decided. 
It's going to be nice to see Uncle Fabian again. He doesn't get out enough, you know. Sure, I'm just not looking forward to seeing Charlie tomorrow, Bran said. You're taking classes with Headmaster Riddle, Jenny reminded him. I know that things aren't different how they are, and the way things are is that there's all sorts of people working most everywhere, Bran said. I'm sure Percy works with people who are on both sides of the war, but there's being co-workers and there's getting chummy. It's a principle of the thing. We're all making do, Percy said, without looking up from his parchment. There's a difference between making do and... He's literally sleeping with the enemy, Percy, Ron said. Tonks isn't that bad, Ginny insisted. She's a Death Eater, Ron replied. There are no Death Eaters anymore, Percy said. The law is very clear about this. Come on there, Percy, you know as well as I do. What I know is that if the Amnesty doesn't cover Tonks, then maybe it doesn't cover... Percy dropped off. And for a moment, Jenny thought that he might use the Malfoys as his example. Maybe it doesn't cover Greg's family. Wasn't his mother going to be sent to Azkaban at first? I'd be very sorry if she did. Ron! Ginny exclaimed, but Ron held his ground. Greg's all right, but I know his mum still cares about blood purity. You're only mad because Tonks works with Headmaster Riddle. And you think that Riddle was responsible for how Dad was treated, Percy said. Because he was! Percy shook his head. You should read Xena. Then you would know that Riddle is a symptom of political transformation, not its cause. If he had never been born, then it would have been someone else. It's like a volcano. Just because you didn't notice something was wrong until the eruption, that doesn't mean there wasn't lava building up beneath the whole time. If you want to blame someone, Percy added, then blame everyone who ever passed on a muggle-born or a werewolf who came to them for a job. Ron looked like he had something to say in response to that. But Mum had just come in from the garden. No politics at the table, Mum snapped. And no work either, she said. Clear the table. If you've time to politicise, then you've time to help prepare for dinner. Tuesday, 22nd August, 1995. Great Uncle Ignatius was there, of course. Percy's middle name was his. Sahilda Garsonk, Percy's girlfriend, or Ginny thought so anyway, but Percy claimed they were just two good fellow public servants. Uncle Leo, who'd gone to work at St. Mungo's like Grandad, great-granddad to Ginny, really, but the name had never been updated for the next generation, and Dad's dad had somehow ended up as Captain. Uncle Fabian, too, and Cousin Genius, and so on. Even so, there were people missing. Great Aunt Muriel was no great loss, but she actually got on well with Percy. It was some of Ginny's other siblings that she couldn't stand, and had sent a parcel in her absence. Granddad had sent something as well, because he didn't trust the artifact's accident ward to get on without him. Percy had clearly been cut from the same cloth they'd used to make Granddad. Mum's cousin Richelot was absent too, but he was a squib, and probably wouldn't have been present even if the Ministry hadn't obliviated him and put him in the Muggle world. It had been the height of surprise when he turned out to have fathered a witch, but Mafalda's new family certainly wasn't going to bring her over to a Weasley gathering. Closer in relation was Uncle Billius, who'd been a flush-faced rabble-rouser and a superstitious rumpot, and had died of fright a few years ago after he supposedly saw the Grimm, and Uncle Gideon, who, well, that was how things went sometimes. While everyone waited for dinner, there was lighter fare available. En route to Grandpa Pickle Sandwich, Ginny spied Ron glaring at one of the ground-floor fireplaces as if he were five instead of fifteen, and might be able to set it alight with a hard look. He still hasn't shown up, 
Ron said, and Ginny didn't need to guess who he was talking about. First you're grumbling about how Charlie was going to show up, she said, and now you're upset that he hasn't. Charlie just can't win with you. I know a way that he could, Ron said. Ginny rolled her eyes, got the pickle sandwich she had come for, and headed back outside where most everyone else could be found. The weather was clear and nice enough to need only a few charms for comfort, and it was easier than expanding the burrow to accommodate all the extra people. The person that she most wanted to meet with was Uncle Fabian, who had been too ill to attend her birthday a couple of weeks ago. She found him in a conjured armchair, idly flipping through a leather-bound book half full of past conversations and occasionally making edits. A few words crossed out here and a note in the margins there. He acknowledged her presence with a nod and offered his notebook to her. Do you remember that deaf girl that I met at Hogwarts? Ginny had already mentioned Samara to him in a letter last year, but it hadn't been until April or May that Ginny had worked up the courage to speak with her about it. It isn't a curse injury at all like I thought it was, she wrote. Deafness can run in families, just like red hair or being a... Ginny was about to write parcel mouth, but thought better of that and wrote seer instead. I know that you get on all right anyway, but she said there are primers on silent casting without mastering the verbal component first, and even spells that don't have incantations at all that you might like if they were translated to English. Now get on, Uncle Fabian said, and Ginny couldn't tell whether his voice was rough from disuse or frustration. Translating too costly anyway, he wrote, roughly. Well, learn to read Lusitanian, then. Ginny replied, maybe a little more sharply than she had intended. She didn't write it out, but that didn't matter. He got the idea. Not like that mattered either. He and Uncle Gideon had fought against Riddle in the last war, and Gideon had been murdered so thoroughly that he almost endured as an absence, marked out by what they didn't say, and how they talked their way around his former presence in their lives, a circumlocution of words, a pause before the conversation changed direction. A sentence that trailed off the edge of a cliff. It almost didn't matter that dark magic had taken Uncle Fabian's hearing. He practically treated it as a penance for being alive when his brother had died, and Ginny wasn't sure he'd have tried to heal the condition even if that were possible. They wrote about Quidditch after that, but somehow they got away from the Tutsil Tornadoes to Britain's bids to host the Quidditch World Cup in 2006, and that led to politics. It was with no small relief that Jenny heard that dinner was nearly ready. While Dad and Uncle Leo transfigured the table to stretch out from the kitchen to the garden, Jenny put the plates in order. It was still a pleasant novelty that everyone could sit down without any fuss. Percy was too old to be given the kicks before his birthday dinner, and the twins, thankfully, were finally old enough to accept that. They still gave each other the kicks on their birthday, but they would probably keep doing so until they were both dead. Mum and Dad had prepared spinach pie for dinner with a hazelnut crust and baked trout in the filling. Fish wasn't as good as real meat, of course, but it was a far sight better than hair, and anyway, Percy actually preferred trout to pork. On the small serving plates across the table were sweet things like citrus tarts and candied strawberries, and there was cucumber or lemon squash to drink. There was an empty seat on Percy's left, which was obviously Charlie's, but there was another empty seat beside that. Ginny wasn't sure what that was about until the fireplace flared partway through dinner and out tumbled Charlie and then out tumbled Tonks, her hair long and the color of bright cinnabar. "'Wash your friends,' she announced cheerily from the floor. Her face was caked with soot, but most robes were enchanted to repel that sort of thing, and when she wiped it clean with her sleeve, both were left unsoiled. "'So I were late,' Charlie said as he helped to pull Tonks up to her feet. 
Sylvanus asked me to uh, attend to the festivals, and we had some trouble along the way. Never mind that. You're here now. Let me summon some plates for you, Martin said, getting up for the table. Professor Kettleburn hasn't been making you eat enough, has he? Look how thin you are. And Nymphidora, I'm so glad you could come, Martin continued, giving Tonks a hug. Out of the corner of her eye, Ginny caught Ron looking like his pie had gone mouldy. What are you saying about the Thestrals? Percy asked as soon as Charlie and Tonks had made all necessary introductions and had been able to sit down. I think I should spare you the details at dinner, but one of the Thestrals, Blanco, well, he's not that old, and I guess this is the first time he's seen a phantom mount. Got spooked and flew away, basically. Charlie paused a moment in order to get a bite of pie. It's hard enough to handle them when they're happy and grounded, but it isn't like I can see them. So I helped, Tonks said. I was already there, since I was already coming here. It was pretty clear to Ginny that Mum and Percy had expected Tonks to be here, and probably Dad as well, and as far as Ginny was concerned, the guest list for Percy's birthday was nobody's business but Percy's, and Mum and Dad's, of course, since it was their house. Ron paid Tonks a withering look anyway, so while most everyone's attention was on Tonks, who was busy explaining how two people caught a flying horse that only trusted one of them and could only be seen by the other, Ginny elbowed Ron in the ribs. Mum and Bill had banked a savory sponge cake, black apple and tomato fruit, cob nuts and walnuts. Atop the icing, a little sugar and a greater amount of cinnamon, stood nineteen sparklers, silver-dipped and blue-flamed, smelling of pumpkin and buttered popcorn. The sparklers danced and ducked as Percy tried to blow them out and hid behind one another as they hopped like monopods across the surface of the cake, so Percy had to grab them one by one and blow them out like that. Even so, they twisted between his fingers and dashed their fiery heads against his hand, but they were alive with nothing but the cool light of a bluebell flame. And then they had been blown out, and they were unalive with nothing at all, just a stack of limp waxen pillars on the side of the table. "'I can't trust you to pour candles without making a prank of them,' Mum started, but Percy waved it off even as he was seizing wayward sparklers. No doubt he was thinking, as Ginny was, that evasive candles were a sight better than the kicks. Ginny ate her slice with care, because little niff-naffs were always mixed into the batter. She didn't find anything, but Ron pulled a pewter thimble out of his mouth. That was supposed to mean that he would never get married, but it was fine. Everybody had gotten the cone of wealth at one point, and the spinster's thimble at another, and nobody had gotten rich, and, well, none of her siblings had married, that was true— but even Bill was only twenty-four. The point was that there were a lot of Weasleys and a lot of birthdays, so the prophet's trifle was just a fun tradition, not proper divination. After dessert, the table was rolled up and everyone moved back outside for Percy to open his gifts, new shoes from Aunt Muriel, charms to remain shiny for years to come, a desk organizer from Uncle Leo with seven wizard space chambers, a green and silver porcelain teacup from Mum and Dad, that only poured out when someone's lips touched the rim. Dad assured Percy that it could still be cleaned by spell or sponge. A toad-eating toadstool from Jenny herself to add some color to the office to keep it free from pests. It was all very functional and pleasing to Percy. Sir Hilda and Bill had both gotten him a set of quills, because it was hard to go wrong with quills around Percy, but they were blown out of the water a little by the Tonks's gift. A brilliant red dictation quill and a vial of black and silver ink, both set in a pewter case. The quills had sold out almost as soon as they were released at the beginning of summer, and the supply had yet to be restored. But Tonks said that she'd managed to snag one. It was a little expensive, all right, it was a lot expensive, but Tonks mentioned nothing about the price. 
Ron frowned anyway, saying to Ginny that it was just another way of showing off, acting as if the cost didn't even register. But if Charlie couldn't win with Ron, then Tonks surely couldn't. "'Tell me you wouldn't be upset if she made a big deal with the price,' Ginny said. "'You're just mad that she's Tonks.' "'I'm mad because it's Percy's birthday, not yours,' Ginny said, keeping her voice low. They stood at the periphery of the party while Percy posed for a photo with Mum and Dad, but they still couldn't get too loud. "'The least you can do is be quiet about it till tomorrow morning.' "'I'm being quiet about it,' Ron insisted. "'You're the one who keeps asking me.' "'Making a face is basically the same thing as saying something. "'It is not. "'In a way, I can't help if I was surprised. "'They could have mentioned it at any time, but then kept it a secret.' "'Just shut up,' Ginny hissed. "'Charlie's come. Hey, "'Is everything all right with you two? asked Charlie. "'You're hissing more than a rune spore. "'Nothing's wrong,' said Ron, while Ginny said. "'Everything's fine.' "'Neither claim seemed to convince Charlie. "'I really am sorry about being late,' he said quietly. "'It's not that,' Ron quickly replied. "'Charlie's eyebrows lifted. "'Then it is something.' "'George might have made up a story about a prank that he'd pulled on Ron.' Fred would have sat back and let Ron try to escape the ditch that he'd dug for himself. Ginny wasn't exactly eager to see the mid-air collision unfolding in front of her, but she couldn't quite turn away from it either. She'd already tried her best to stop it, and she was short on backup ideas. Ron finally spoke. Why'd you even bring her here? Because she's been busy this whole summer, and she's finally got a chance to relax, and we thought this would be nice, Charlie said. Because I love her, and I want the family to get to know her better. She's a metamorphmagus. Ron said. Couldn't at least have asked her to look different? This whole time we could have pretended that you were taking someone else. I'm not going to ask my girlfriend to make an entire life on the side just so that you could feel comfortable. Why not? Maybe the first time she's worn a mask? Ron! exclaims Jenny, but he ignored her. Did you forget how little we had when Dad was sacked? Ron asked. Tonks doesn't care. I'm sure she ain't just fine in her home. She's a month older than me, Charlie said. "'Nothing that happens to our family is our fault. "'She said it was okay when she decided to put on that mask. "'You don't understand what you're talking about,' Mum said. "'And Ginny realised that she wasn't the only person watching their argument. "'Uncle Leo, Grandma Pruitt, the rest of her brothers, Tonks, too, "'who looked to have been talking with Cousin Genius when the row started, "'and looked fixedly dispassionate.' until Ginny noticed how little she was blinking and how her hair seemed to be curling ever more tightly. Uncle Fabian, thank goodness, was still reading his notebook, totally oblivious to the scene. Mum looked at Ron and Charlie both, as if daring either of them to speak up. "'The only thing that matters is that all of you are alive. Alive and well. Maybe you take that for granted, Ron, but once you know enough to know different, it'll be too late for you. All of you are alive.' she continued. And her gaze fell on Ginny and Charlie as well. Every one of you. And it shouldn't matter whether one of you was a Death Eater, or what a Dumbledore's men, or a Swedish spy. You'd be family before that, and you'd still be family after it. Ron didn't say a single word to anyone else after that. And though everyone made a good show of enjoying the rest of the party, Ginny couldn't help but feel that something important had slipped through her fingers. For the full text of this and other stories by the same author, visit the archive of our own page of Call Me Saltisside. The music is Amon Ra by Days Witch under a Creative Commons license with assistance from 1T1.
If you would like to commission me to record a story, voiceover, or character, please get in touch with me using the contact information on my website, which is located at sangabrielvo.com. And there you can find other stories that I've read, as well as links to my Patreon page, to which I hope you consider subscribing to support me, and my Discord server, where I record things live for your enjoyment. And finally, as always, thank you for listening.